Hi, I'm Anjali. I'm a producer here on It's Been a Minute. Hi, I'm Alex. I'm an editor on the show. So, Alex, let's start by actually telling listeners what it takes to make this show. Uh, The process actually begins with pitching. It just begins with throwing ideas out there. And then we actually have to take those ideas and book the people we want on the show. We're taping these interviews with people in studio, sometimes going out to them in the field. And then our producers put their headphones on and they start cutting this massive thing down. And then editors like Alex on our show are actually listening back to it and making sure what we're cutting is working. And then we ship it off to you, the listeners. And before you know it, it's in your ears, in your podcast feeds, and on your radio. We're a bi-coastal team, so we're always sending each other messages and emails, picking up the phone, talking nonstop to get this done. So many emails. And slacks. And slacks. <laughs> the best part of the show is that you get to be a part of it, too. Every week, you call in and you tell us about the best thing that happened to you that week. And we actually sit down and we listen to all of those. So whether you're on the East Coast or the Best Coast... <clears throat> I mean the West Coast, or somewhere in between, show your support for this show at donate.npr.org Sam. After all, we're building a community thanks to you. All right, let's get to the show. Hey, y'all. From NPR, I'm Sam Sanders. It's been a minute. Happy holidays. Today we're taking a break from the news and our usual weekly wrap to bring you a fun encore episode featuring two awesome writers we had on the show earlier this year, Angie Thomas and Candice Cardi-Williams. Angie is the author of a book called The Hate You Give. It is a plotline ripped from the headlines all about a girl who loses her friend who was shot and killed while unarmed by a police officer. The Hate You Give debuted at number one on the New York Times Young Adult Bestseller list, It won a bunch of awards. You may have even saw the feature film uh, based on that book. In this episode, you'll hear me talk to Angie a bit about that, but more about her second book, which is called On the Come Up. That one also was a bestseller right out the gate. And then later, you'll hear my conversation with Candice Carty-Williams. She wrote Queenie, one of the biggest fiction debuts of this year. Queenie has been called the Black Bridget Jones Diary, which might sound offensive, but Candice does not mind that as long as you read the book. Both of these authors this episode get really real with me about issues of race, interracial dating, family drama, the publishing industry, etc. It's good, meaty stuff. Let's get into it. First up is Angie. Fun fact, Angie Thomas actually joined me from Jackson, Mississippi with her mom. Her mom came in studio with her. The cutest thing. Uh, We all talked earlier this year about her latest book on the come up. It's about a young woman trying to make it as a rapper. So I began asking Angie about the rap scenes she writes for her characters. You write these epic rap battle scenes in the book, and I haven't, like, been transported into the feel of a rap battle that expertly since, like, 8 Mile. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it was really good. And I and Thank I kept you. thinking the whole time. I was like, I bet you Angie Thomas has been in her own rap battle before. You must have been, right? <laughs> That's all I kept thinking. 
Well, okay, here's the thing. Um, first, I'm so happy you brought up the whole eight mile thing because that was like an influence on me when I was really? writing the book. In fact, I named um, the gym where they go to battle, I named it Jimmy's because that was the name of Eminem's character in Eight Mile. So that was like oh. my way of paying homage to that. Yeah. That's such a good movie. <laughs> that movie, like, I have mixed feelings about Eminem, but that mm-hmm. movie, but that movie still slaps. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that movie. That movie is a classic. Yeah. Um, but I, I personally didn't battle battle when I was a teen. I was a rapper when I was a teenager, but I wasn't really good at it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I can admit that now. Um, when I would do like rap battles, I wouldn't even really call them battles because I would go and and it was supposed to be freestyles, but I would be doing stuff that I already wrote, you know. Mm. Or sometimes Which is a I no no, right? Right, that's a no-no. Pre-written is a no-no. So I hoped that with writing these scenes and with showing people the ins and outs of it and, and the internal part of it, of coming up with freestyles on the spot, that maybe just maybe more people would respect it as an art form, you know, but I can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of rap, your new book, which I'm devouring, On the Come Up, um, how much of a description of this book can you tell your listeners, our listeners, without, like, spoilers. Yeah, sure. On the come up, um, I always have to say this at the beginning, it's not a sequel or a spinoff to The Hate You Give. Okay. Um, I get a lot of questions about, am I doing a sequel? I have no plans for a sequel right now because I think Star needs a break from me. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But it is set in the same neighborhood as The Hate You Give, and it is about a 16-year-old girl named Brianna who wants to be a rapper. And her life is turned upside down when one... Her mom unexpectedly loses her job, and two, a song she makes goes viral for all the wrong reasons, and she finds herself in the center of a controversy that's too big for her to control. But because of the fact that she's a young black person in America, she's not given national interviews to make herself seem innocent. She's seen as a villain in this narrative. But as her family situation gets worse, she finds herself desperate to make it, even if it means becoming the very thing people have made her out to be. So... This book is set in the same neighborhood as your first book, The Hate You Give, uh, Garden Heights. Uh, describe that neighborhood for us and then tell me why you chose the same neighborhood but a different character and a different plot for this new book. Garden Heights is loosely based on the neighborhood where I grew up here in Jackson, Mississippi. Um, Garden Heights is that neighborhood that all of us know about that one neighborhood in every major city um, where you know you don't go there. You know, every every city has at least mm-hmm. one neighborhood where you don't go there unless you have to go there. Mm-hmm. I decided to return there for a couple of reasons. Um, for one, for me, it feels so much like home because, like I was saying, it's based on my own neighborhood. But mm-hmm. after the events of The Hate You Give... I thought it was important to return to this neighborhood. You know, we Hmm. saw what happened at the end of The Hate You Give with the community and Mm -hmm. the uprising in response to Khalil's murder. But when we see these things happen in real life, nobody really takes the time to find out, well, what's the neighborhood like now? Hmm. You know, what's Ferguson like now? And Hmm. it felt very fitting to go back there, too, and to start Bree's story in the aftermath of Khalil. Um, I often compare Bree to hip-hop itself, you know, Mm. and hip-hop started, you know, in the Bronx after the Bronx burnings when there was so much chaos in that Hmm. that borough. And so now we're in Garden Heights after so much chaos in this neighborhood, and this young lady has managed to find her voice through an art form just like those kids in the Bronx did back in the 70s. So it just felt fitting to return there and find someone who is figuring out how to use their voice to make themselves heard. Yeah. What I love about On the Come Up and what I love about Bree and her story, like, it's as much about 
her story and how she sees the world as it is about the way the rest of the world sees Brie. Uh, this young, talented person of color, young woman who is obviously gifted, but like very misunderstood. Mm-hmm. And you also write about how like her entire neighborhood is misunderstood, particularly in the aftermath of some rioting that takes place in Garden Heights. There's this line you have that just stopped me in my tracks when you were describing how this kind of community is treated after a police-involved shooting. You said it was like having a stranger come in your house, steal one of your kids, and blame you for it because your family was dysfunctional, while the whole world judges you for being upset. hmm Man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you feel yeah. that way about, I don't know, the news and things in the news tied to some of the stuff that you tackle? you know, in this book and the previous one. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I think for so many of us, the frustrating part is that when these incidents happen, um, the blame immediately goes to the communities or to the families or even the victims themselves. You know, I think Trayvon Martin is blamed for his own death by more people than George Zimmerman is blamed for it. Oh, yeah. And and you wonder, why is this? Why is it that particularly black people are always found at fault when we're really the victims in so many of these instances? So, yeah, that line, that, that, that comes from me myself. But I also hope that it makes people think about why is it that black people are never given the benefit of the doubt? Why is it that we're always blamed even when we're victims? What does that say about this country and about us as a society? And the thing I wonder with that, it's like, all right, we're, what, five or six years into the Black Lives Matter movement? And there are Mm -hmm. some days when I question if that movement has changed any of that sentiment that you just spoke of. Like, Mm -hmm. is the way some people want to see Black suffering has it been changed at all by all the protests, by all the marches, by all the movement? I don't know some days. You know? It's, it's hard it's, for me to say. Really? Yeah. Because it it's is. like it's I want to be me. encouraged, but I don't I don't know. Do you do you think it's getting better? You know, I think what's happening right now is that um we're in such a time of turmoil that so many of these stories are being lost in the headlines when you have, you know, political leaders who are serving fast food to football players, that becomes the headline, not the young black, mm. unarmed black person who was killed by a cop. That's no mm. longer the headlines now. People are, we're, people are distracted um, by shenanigans, you know, so yeah. um, but then on the same, at the same time, I'm seeing some changes, you know, I can say personally, I've seen changes. Um, I've had a chance to tour the world because of the hate you give, and I've talked to people around the world um, about the Black Lives Matter movement and things like that, and the fact that I had, you know, like a 90-year-old white woman who came to me in tears at a signing and she told me she loves the book and she gets it now. That gives me hope. Mm. But on a large scale, it feels at times like as a society, we haven't made much. Um, mm. We haven't made many changes. Mm. Yeah. You know, I was thinking a lot about how you want to position your work and your books in that push for change. I had the most interesting conversation with a white friend of mine I knew that I was going to talk to him, was excited about it. And he said his big question as a white adult reading this book, he was like, is Angie writing these books primarily for young black kids to better see themselves or for young white kids to better see a world they don't know? 
or is it somewhere in the middle? I mean, it, it's not. I mean, it's not as simple as like, is this for black kids or for white kids? Question. But like, I wonder mm-hmm. how you navigate that because based on who you are as a kid reading this, it is a different experience, right? Absolutely. You know, and um, I often say that my priority. Um, my priority is those black kids. They don't get mm. enough books about themselves. Mm. You know, they don't. They aren't given enough enough mirrors to see themselves. Um, Dr. Rudine Sims Bishops, who's a wonderful academic um, in children's literature, she says that books are either mirrors, windows, or sliding glass doors. And I think it's important for my books to be all three. Um, mm. So I, I always think of those kids, especially in my old neighborhood, who say I hate reading. And why do they say that? Because they rarely see themselves in books. So yeah. I'm always going to think about them first and if it creates a mirror a window wonderful that's that's great but always always the priority um, my priority is those black kids when do you know as a writer of young adult content when kids are ready for the serious issues you you raise in your books you know it's hard for me to say because i think it depends on the kid Mm. i've had eight-year-olds write to me directly and say that they love the hate you give. And I'm wow. like, does your mama know you read that? You know? <laughs> <laughs> you know? But he wrote me this letter, and I got to respond to him. But he wrote me this letter, and he said, I love your book, and keep doing what you're doing. You're making a difference. And the world is going to be a better place because you're in it. And it made me cry. But the mm. fact is, he's eight. And what also what really got me about it, though, was the fact that he mentioned that his mom got him the book. And that made me say, huh, your mom thought that at eight years old you needed to read this book. That Mm. means that you are aware of something that an eight-year-old should not have to be aware of. Mm. And I'm glad that my book was there for him, but I'm sad that he had to be at that point. Mm. You know, I, I had a lot of white parents say, I'm not sure. I had a white parent tell me, I'm not sure my 13-year-old is ready to read The Hate You Give. And Mm. I said, well, just think of this. There are black parents of eight-year-olds who have to have these conversations. Mm -hmm. If you only have to worry about your child reading about it, consider yourself blessed. Come on. That's privilege. Mm. One of the things that I love about your career is that on top of just making good books, you are trying to make a good industry for books. And you have spoken out a lot about the lack of diversity in publishing, particularly the lack of diversity in publishing of children's books. You've even gone so mm-hmm. far as to call out your own publisher, HarperCollins, and say, when you were a kid, they weren't making books for you. Um, years into this work now, do you think that's getting better? I do. Um, I do. Um, we're seeing more and more books um, featuring kids of color and just marginalized kids, period, at the forefront. You know, there was one time just a few months ago where Half of the books on the New York Times bestseller list starred kids of color. And that huh. was amazing. You know, that was incredible to see. Yeah. And and it's showing them that, yeah, these books can sell. These books can sell well, too. Um, but on the flip side, my fear is that, and I and I take, I, I, part, part of me feels guilty about this, but on the flip side, my fear is that they're assuming that only issue books, so-called issue books, mm. can be acquired about kids of color. You know, the Hate You Give and On The Come Up, people are calling them important books, and that's great. But let's also have, can we get a Twilight featuring black kids? 
Come on. You know, can can we can we get romantic comedies featuring black kids, rom-coms? Can we can we just have stories with them just being and just doing? Can we get even crappy books about black kids? Every book <laughs> doesn't have to, you know, there are plenty of crappy books out there. Every book does not have to be stellar because it's about a kid of color or by a person of color. Yeah. So, I'm seeing changes and I want to see more changes, but I really want to see more changes within publishing itself, within the offices themselves. And I'm thankful because my publisher is amazing. My editor, she's amazing. Balls and Bray, they are one of the most diverse imprints out there. Hmm. And I'm so proud of them and the work they're doing. Um, Of the three of the big YA movies that came out last year, they um, published most of them. Really? And 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 they were all about characters that you wouldn't see necessarily at the forefront, but they made us all, they put us all at the forefront. So this was Hate to Give, and um, what else as far as movies? Um, Love Simon. Oh yeah, which was based on Simon versus the Homo Sapiens Agenda. Um, oh. Dumplin', which was based on the book Dumplin', oh. which was about a, a fat girl. And yeah. then um, there was the Miseducation of Cameron Post, which was about um, LGBTQIA kids. So they did mm-hmm. all of those books, and they all became amazing movies. Um, and so hits. they're showing, yeah. <laughs> so they're showing publishing that diverse books should be given just as much attention as any other books, but also they're showing that there can be a wide a wide range of diverse books. So yeah. shout out to my publisher. They're doing shout it right. Out. <laughs> they're going to love this interview. <laughs> You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. It is time for a break. You're hearing my encore chat with the author Angie Thomas. After the break, she tells me how she's dealing with her newfound fame. BRB. Support for It's Been a Minute and the following message come from Green from Amex. A little pep talk goes a long way. Whether it's over a big old plate of comfort food or a comfortable drive out of town with your besties, Green from Amex can help cheer you on with three times points on restaurants and travel, including car rentals. It's built around your lifestyle so you can keep doing you with an extra boost of confidence. Learn more at AmericanExpress.com slash Green from Amex. Terms apply. Support also comes from The Real Real, the leading reseller of authenticated luxury consignment. Shop luxury clothing, accessories, and fine art at unreal prices. From your favorite designers like Louis Vuitton, Gucci, Cartier, and hundreds more. And The Real Real's team of authenticators from around the globe ensure every item is authenticated daily. Shop in-store, on the app, or at therealreal.com and receive 20% off select items with promo code REAL. Hey, Mindy here from NPR's Wow in the World. Join Guy Raz and me for our special 100th episode, a musical, science, laughs, melodies. 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 It's Wow in the World from Tinkercast and NPR. Listen now and share with your kids. We are back. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders, and we're giving you a very special episode with two great writers we've had on this show in 2019. Angie Thomas and Candice Cardi-Williams. Right now, more of my chat with Angie Thomas. She is the mind behind the books The Hate You Give and On the Come Up. Angie told me about the non-traditional path she took to get her first book published. Another thing I love about your story is how it shows that, like, in terms of, like, diversifying publishing, there also has to be a reconception of what the pipeline even looks like. I think that there is a very traditional path one goes about to get a book published, and your story proved that you don't have to have that path. You 
found your agent on Twitter? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Tell folks yeah. that story. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, I was um, in the middle of finishing up my edits on The Hate You Give, and I was considering sending it out to literary agents. But, like, a few weeks earlier, a study had come out saying that that year alone, there were more books featuring animals and trucks as the main characters than black kids. Good God. And for me, I know. And for me, I was like, wait, what? First of all, what? And then knowing that I, <laughs> knowing that I have this book about this black girl, and not just a book about a black girl, but a book about that's inspired by the Black Lives Matter movement, mm-hmm. I immediately thought there is no way I have a shot. So I was actually at my job. Um, I worked at a church at the time, and I was on my lunch break, and I signed on Twitter, and I saw that a literary agency was holding a question-and-answer session. Basically, um, aspiring writers could just ask publishing-related questions and get a response. You know, there are so many things so many of us want to know, but we're so often afraid to ask, and here they were giving us a chance to ask, even if we sounded stupid. So Mm -hmm. um, I just asked the question using the hashtag. I was like, um, are books that deal with sensitive issues a no-no? And Hmm. I wasn't even sure how to word it, but I was like, let's just put it like that. And so this agent, Brooks Sherman, he responded and he was like, what kind of issues? And Hmm. I said, the the Black Lives Matter movement. I have a young adult book dealing with that. And he said, I don't think that any topic is off topic in young adult books. It's all about how you approach it. Hmm. And I said, well, I hope I did it right. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, well, I'd actually like to read it. So The rest is history. (laughs) Yeah, I emailed it to him. And he read it, loved it, and signed me. And maybe three months after signing me, we went on submission to publishers, and 13 U.S. publishers fought for the rights to this book. Wow. So Twitter is good for something. (laughs) 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 I'm very thankful to Jack for that, if nothing else. (laughs) I talk about Jack Dorsey. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my goodness. I also love, like, the entire backstory of the hate you give. Like, mm-hmm. and I don't want to tell your story. I want you to tell it. But, like, you started writing this book, like, in college at, what is it, Bellhaven University? Yeah, Bellhaven University. It's a liberal arts school here in Jackson, Mississippi. Um, I was in the creative writing program. I was actually the first black student to graduate from the creative writing program. And that's really just because the program was young. Mm -hmm. Um, I think I was part of the third or fourth graduating class, but still I was the first black student. But then that also meant I was the only black student a lot of times. Uh So like when stuff like slavery got discussed, everybody looked at me as (laughs) if I was there. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, I'm not Harriet. (laughs) Yeah. But I often found myself being two different people in two very different worlds. I still lived in my old neighborhood. And although it was like 10 minutes away from Bellhaven, it was an entirely different world. Um, If you've read the book The Help or watched the movie, like the neighborhood where the maids worked, that's where Mm -hmm. my school is. Mm. So it was totally different from my hood, you know. Um, And I found myself just changing who I was, where I was often. But um, while I was in school, a young man named Oscar Grant lost his life in Oakland, California. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know him personally but I took his death very personally. Um, Oscar, the last day of his life, is the subject of the movie Fruitvale Station, Yeah. Um, for those who don't know. So I wrote I wrote a short story about a boy named Khalil who was a lot like Oscar and a mm. girl named Star who lived, lived in those two different worlds like I did. So that's mm. essentially how The Hate You Give was born. It was my senior project for college. Mm. So you're still in Jackson? 
For now, yeah. And you grew up there? Yes. It must have given you such a rich sense of history to come from there. and to be, mm-hmm. I mean, like, it's a place full of history. I was reading, what, you grew up like three minutes away from Medgar Evers' home. Your mother heard the shot that killed him. Like, you, like mm-hmm. you're walking amidst history in Jackson, Mississippi. I'm sure it must affect the way you write and how you write. Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, um, Mississippi is known for two things, um, racism and writing. And I happen to be a writer who writes about racism. (laughs) 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 It was kind of inevitable. But, yeah, yeah, you know, I I think it was William Faulkner who once said, if you can understand Mississippi, you can understand America. Because Mm. what happens here, it happens all over the country. You know, and the history we have here is America's history. And and for me, I have to say, you know, I have to admit, like, I'm struggling with it now. Do I stay or do I leave? Because as a Mississippian, um, the relationship with this state often feels like a relationship with an emotionally abusive parent. You still love them, but at times you're wow. like, I don't need this. This is toxic. But you're staying for a while? You could easily um, move anywhere you wanted to at this point, right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm definitely considering at least just living here part-time within the next year or so really? um, and just making it a part-time residence and i'm still trying to decide it because okay. the struggle for me is i like staying because if nothing else i give the kids here an example and show mm. them what's possible mm. you know nelson mandela mandela always said that he made sure he shook people's hands because he wanted them to feel what's possible so i want kids in mississippi yeah. to see me to know yeah. what's possible i grew up knowing that oprah was from here but Come it on. didn't click that Oprah was from here because I didn't see Oprah. She is more than welcome to fix that by coming to my house or something. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I love you, Oprah. There was no shade at you. I, you know, but I knew she was from here. But I wasn't used to seeing people every day or even just around town mm. and knowing that they were doing things like this and mm. they were still here, that it was possible. So that's mm. why it's a struggle for me to decide whether to stay or to leave. Yeah. A thing I read about you um, was that since... Your career took off. You moved um, into a gated neighborhood. (laughs) Yeah. How does that feel? I mean, particularly writing about the communities that you write about in your books. Mm -hmm. Did you feel like you were leaving some of that reality when you moved on up? Oh, yeah. I had a struggle like Maverick struggled in The Hate You Give, you know, like Mm. if does leaving change who I am? And I had to just realize that it doesn't. You know, the weird thing about specifically the Metro Jackson area is that Mm -hmm. a lot of the nice neighborhoods and safe neighborhoods are gated. And Hmm. and it always makes me think of this line that CeeLo Green had in one of the uh, Goody Mob songs. He says, but every now and then I wonder if the gate was put up to keep crime out or keep I in. Mm. I think about that a lot yeah. when I see <laughs> yeah. when I see these gated neighborhoods. So moving into one, I was like, huh. But I had to come to the realization like Maverick does in the book. Just because I live don't live there doesn't mean I don't care about what happens there. So mm. I'm making investments into that community. I'm, I want to do things to continue to improve that community, even if I don't live there. I had to move for safety's sakes, you know, because when all dope boys start saying, oh, she got money, you need to leave. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I still care about what happens there, and I'm still investing into that community. Yeah. So, you know, it doesn't matter if you live there or not. You just need to care about it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, thinking about moving on up, like, I'm sure— not just your location, but maybe everything about your life changed since the crazy, amazing success of The Hate You Give. Like, 
how different is your life, I guess, from like church secretary to now? Oh, it's totally different. Before the book came out, um, I'd only ever traveled to Alabama and Memphis, and those two don't wow. count. You know, <laughs> those, those are like, that's like being in extended Mississippi, you know. <laughs> but um, I, before that, I had never traveled. And now I've been to several countries, you know. Mm. I, I'd never been on a plane before. And now mm. I'm like diamond on Delta, you know. I'm flying okay. all the time. You know? <laughs> so that's, that's changed. And, and, and just being now a, a, a recognizable person, you know, I was in Kroger the other week and somebody recognized me and I'm like dang I just can't come out the house now and look any kind of way somebody's gonna be like Andy Thomas was in Kroger in her robe what you know, <laughs> I can't do that yeah. so yeah. that, that I, people recognize me now but I'm thankful that you know with my family I'm still the same everything's still the same you know um, yeah. my mom will still get on my case about my room looking a mess because I bought a house and I put my mom in the house with me and even though I paid a mortgage she'll get on me about my room and I'm looking at <laughs> her as I say it um, <laughs> Mom, you want to go on the mic? I have to give her a chance to offer some rebuttal. Come no, on, Mom. No. Come on. Put her on the mic. And she's talking about looking at me. I'm looking at her, too. Because my room is a mess right yes. now. <laughs> I love it. Do you promise right now, Miss Thomas, to clean your room after this interview? I will clean my room when she I get home. <laughs> yes, she will. See, see, that's what I mean. I love it. Some things, some things haven't changed. I'm thankful yep. for that. I'm thankful that yeah. that's that's the same. You know, even though I'm 31 years old, that's still the same. If you're 92, I'm still mom. Okay. Oh, come on. Come on, mom. All right, come let's on. move the mic. <laughs> Oh, I love this. I love this. <laughs> so, yeah, some things are still the same, and I'm very thankful for that. <laughs> yes, yes. Angie Thomas, thank you so much for that chat. It was delightful. Also, thanks to your mom, who was delightful. All right, now author Candice Cardi-Williams. Candice wrote Queenie. It is a page-turner of a fiction debut that has been called The Black Bridget Jones Diary. thing I loved about Queenie was how everything in that book was on the table. The characters here talked about all of the stuff. I will let Candice tell you more about that herself. So Queenie is about a black British woman um, living in South London. She is 25 and we basically meet her when she's about to have what I can describe best as a quarter life crisis. Mm. Um, So she is living with her partner um, who is white. um, And when their relationship hits a bit of a, well, a big rock, um, things start to unravel for her. Uh, Things in the past that she's been pushing down come out and she basically goes on a big messy spiral that is fun. Um, and they're a really fun uh, set of uh, supporting characters helping her through it. Um, yes. And so she is, you know, and also, you know, Queenie, she is, she's meant to be frustrating and she's meant to be quite irritating because she is in this period of her life where she's like, I don't know what's going to happen and I'm really scared. And so I'm just reaching out and pulling on to everything and anyone that I can um, so I don't fall. Yeah. When you say that Queenie is meant to be frustrating and irritating Mm. how do you like is there ever a fear that you're giving readers too much because you're because you're saying all right queenie's going to be unashamedly black 
and mm-hmm. also frustrating and also irritating. I could see some publishing houses saying, I don't know, Candice, might be too much. <laughs> Did you get any pushback like that? Uh, no, I didn't actually, which is really nice. Uh, <laughs> um, but I think it's also because, you know, I really did set out to have a character who was not, she was black and she did not have to be strong. She did not have to be sassy. She did not have to click her fingers. She was somebody who was going through stuff. And actually, I think there is a lot about women being likable that I kind of push against myself mm. Mm. Uh, because I think that women just in our everyday lives, we have to be polite. We have to be likable. We have to be nice. Um, and I think that we can be many things, um, but we also don't have to adhere to social norms just to get through the day. I think if you're feeling something, you're feeling it, and you have to go through what you're going through. I'm a nice person, but there are, <laughs> I, you know, I, but I also have boundaries, and I don't take a lot of rubbish. Yeah, Queenie, Queenie has very few boundaries. <laughs> yeah, very few boundaries. Um, but yeah, so no pushback from that. Actually, my editors were really kind of. Like, yeah, this girl is kind of going through her thing and she's kind of got to be this person who is going to kind of split the crowd. Yeah. Uh, you, this book has been called for a few, for a while now, The Black Bridget Jones Diary, which is mm. actually a descriptor that you came up with yourself from what I was reading. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me why you did it and tell me if that comparison or, and that labeling ever tires you. So it's interesting. A lot of uh, people have been like, you're doing the book a huge disservice by saying that. Um, <laughs> but I think just because, you know, obviously, like, shout out to Bridget Jones's Diary by Helen Fielding, an amazing book, an amazing yeah. film. Yeah. Um, but in terms of the comparison, that was me being like, I know that publishers are going to be quite scared of this because mm. we don't have any really in the commercial space at the moment mainstream books by mm. black women. And I mean, black on both sides so my both of my mm-hmm. parents are black I do not have fair skin I do not have loose curls I do not have freckles I am black on both sides and um, uh. and by saying look this is like you know hopefully going to be a commercial success yeah. that was the Bridget Jones effect that was my like stealth that was like my sneaking uh-huh. into a but yeah so I mean it worked out well I got it through the door <laughs> 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 and so it's, it's all going well it's all going well yeah. does that stealthifying though ever get tiring because black people have to do it all, all the time like how do yeah. I present myself in a way that they get that doesn't mm. offend them that doesn't make them stop and scratch their head and like you want to do it so your work and you have the greatest reach but also some days are you just like I mean I find myself being just like I don't want to have to do it today yeah for sure I mean there's a lot of Code switching is the main thing. So obviously speaking differently. And I'm speaking like this because I'm doing a podcast. So I need to be proper. (laughs) Wait, no, no, no. Stop, stop, stop. Give me some unproper candies for just a little bit. We can go there. We're the slightly drunk NPR podcast. We're like a little bit buzzed. That's our vibe. So feel free to let it all hang out. I could drop it a bit. Okay. Um, (laughs) So So basically it's just, um, so there is code switching, which is, and also just like in terms of dress. So basically I will always wear, I will mainly wear a tracksuit because I just want to be comfortable. Yeah. Um, But I have to, when you, like when you do these things, you have to like be acceptable just like appearance wise and voice wise. You have to make sure you say the right things. Mm. And so like when you're doing press, that's like a triple think because you're like okay so I've also got to not swear and I've got to like not give things away and I've got to think about who my audience are going to be and so yeah so it's a really like you know it is a lot of work a lot of the time but I talk to like my friends who like I speak to my actor friends basically who like Mm. 
have been doing this and kind of are shaping how have helped me to shape how I can see myself and yeah. understanding like you know your identity and what that can mean but what's their um, biggest tip on all of that uh it is that being all things for people isn't sustainable mm. And that's really helpful because yeah. I go to, so here, obviously, I do lots and lots of events. And even if I'm like exhausted, I'll be like, all right, do it because there's going to be like three or four black girls in the crowd who are going to be grateful that you've gone there. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so it's a lot. So it's all been a good time, but it's also a lot of work and a lot of like policing yourself in ways just so you know. Also, my nan is watching all this stuff oh. and <laughs> you have to have to like, I can't. I can't. Can't be slipping. <laughs> <laughs> She's so strict. So, really? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the book in itself. Like I was, I gave her a copy, and I was like, "But you can't read it, but you can have it in the house." <laughs> Did she and read she it? Was like, no, she hasn't, because she knows that she was like, "I don't want to be. I don't wow. want any reason to dis- to be disappointed." So, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think she will? You allow her at some point to read it, and will she ever read it? I don't know. I think she might, you know, she might do a sneak read and never talk to me about it. And wow. that's fine. Okay. But my my mum, like, is kind of, my mum doesn't read. She's dyslexic. So she's uh-huh. like, it's quite hard. So it's like, it's like effort for her to read. So she's like, oh, can, you know, I'm trying. And, you know, I've liked what I've read. And she's on page, like, seven or something. <laughs> Get her that um, audio book. Get her that audio book. <laughs> God, that's such a good point. She has, <laughs> that, thanks. Um, I, can get her, I, can, I reckon I get her an audible credit. Yeah. Um, and my sister is 20 and we do not talk about anything to do with men really. And so mm. I'm a bit like, read it, but we won't talk about it. Huh. And she's like, all right, understood. I mean, she's 20, but I see her as like, you know, a child. Oh, you so, always will. She's a younger sister. Yeah. Exactly. So as you deal with family reading or possibly reading this book... I'm sure one question they'll be asking you and probably a question a lot of folks are asking you is how much of Queenie is you? Basically, I have I have a really vivid imagination in that if I say I like meet someone at the bus stop, I can then sit if I'm bored and like reimagine our whole lives. Um, <laughs> you together. and me both. Listen, Up until death. Yeah, seriously. In my mind, I'm married five times a day. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And so it really comes from that. So it's kind of like, okay, so a few experiences I had, a few dates I went on, a few people that I know. But also, you know, it is a work of fiction and there's nothing in that that I could be like, yeah. this, this is part of my life. And Queenie is like very far from me. I'm really mm. considered. I'm really careful. Um, my heart is like very guarded. You know, like I'm yeah. just, we're very different people. And she's a kind of, I guess maybe she's she was me if I let myself be vulnerable and I let myself go. Mm. Um, so she's yeah, she's a she's a different version, but I don't really see my I don't really see myself in her. And I too find her frustrating because <laughs> someone actually described her the other day as like the frustrating friend that you love loads, um, oh, yeah. and they, they will always ask for your advice and you'll give it to them even though you and know they you're not they know they're not going to take it. Um, you were saying in one interview that I was reading up on that. That she's perhaps more fun, but you're more stable. <laughs> which I, which oh, I, for sure. I mean, I'm not, I'm not that much more stable, but my instability does not affect my actions. <laughs> yeah, which... yeah. <laughs> All right, listeners, time for a break. When we come back, author Candice Cardi-Williams tells me about her own personal relationships. We'll be right back. Support for NPR and the following message come from Netflix's new series, Messiah. What would it take to make you believe in something crazy? When a man starts performing miracles and saying he's the Messiah, one CIA agent is determined to find the truth. 
no matter how crazy it may be. Messiah streaming now, only on Netflix. Support also comes from Doctors Without Borders. Doctors Without Borders teams confront hard facts in conflict and crisis zones. When others look away, they step in to act. In emergencies and their aftermath, they provide essential health care, run hospitals and clinics, perform surgery, battle epidemics, carry out vaccination campaigns, and more. Information on their efforts and campaigns in over 70 countries can be found at doctorswithoutborders.org. Hey, y'all, before we get back to the show, I want to remind you one more time of how you can keep this show coming to you every week by supporting the work of your local NPR member station. To do that, go to donate.npr.org slash Sam. Or just text the word Sam to the number 49648. We'll send you a text message with a link where you can find your local station and make your contribution. Message and data rates may apply. You can visit npr.org slash SMS terms for privacy and text message terms. Okay, thank you. We are back. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders. Usually what we do on weekends like these is a weekly wrap of the news of the week. But because it's a holiday weekend, I thought we'd mix it up, try something different. I'm sharing with you now conversations with two of my favorite authors of this past year. You're hearing now conversations with one of my favorite authors of the year, Candice Carty-Williams. Candice wrote Queenie, this page-turner of a fiction debut. In the book, Candice writes really bluntly about race and the life of the main character in her book. But Candice also gets real, with me, about interracial relationships in her own life. One of the things I wondered if there was commonality in was the complicated... Uh, the complications of Queenie dating white men. Is that something mm. that you've experienced too? Yeah, for sure. Um, I don't date white men anymore. Haven't for a while. Um, okay. And actually, my... Sorry, my guys. Old, <laughs> honestly, there aren't going to be many people complaining. Um, no, my <laughs> older brother runs my website. He's like 38. Mm-hmm. And he's had to send me, like in a really exasperated way, all of the weird emails that I get from white men who are what? like, Hi, read your interview. Don't agree with what you're saying. Here's why I think you could date me. Here is oh. my value, sexual and otherwise. It's just like, I'm always like, Claude, I'm so sorry. You do not have to send me these. But he's like, no, no, it's fine. It's funny. But um, how do you feel when you get those? Do you, because on the one hand, you can say, like, well, I appreciate these men for trying. But on the other hand, back, back. I just love, I think it's, I think also because it's come through my brother. I can't (laughs) see them as anything but like jokes. (laughs) Because I can't be like, okay, great. I'll email him. But I also wouldn't anyway. But I was talking about it the other day. I mean, seriously, I talk about this. I mean, having written a novel, people want to talk about these things all the time now. But in terms of um, interracial dating, I I have done it. Um, And... Yeah, there girl, are some, we all have. right? I mean, <laughs> I mean, there are some nice instances, but also, you know, like I found it to be a lot of work a lot of the time, and I think that a relationship is work all the time, but it shouldn't be in that way. And I don't, I just think it's tiresome having to explain why things impact you and affect you all the time, and why certain words aren't nice. And you just kind of like, why am I doing it? And then like, you know, you 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 start like dating black people, and you're like, yeah. I don't have to do this work, you know. Yeah. 
Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I know, I know and love many interracial couples, yeah. not in a threesome way, just in a <laughs> they're my friends way. Yes, um, yes, yes. But yeah. you know, and I really love and respect them. But I just think for me, the work mm-hmm. I've done also, I'm a super, super, super sensitive person. Um, and I get really quickly exhausted by having to do that work. Mm. And I'm just kind of, you know, it's just, it feels yeah. like it's, you know. Not to like cape for the straight white men out there. They're fine. But like, is there a reality in which a white guy who really gets it and doesn't need the handholding, would he have a chance with you? I'm yet to meet him, if I'm there. I don't know if I will. Um, but I don't know. I don't, do you know what? I don't, I don't think so. Okay. And I think, I mean, it's kind of, I don't know, I guess maybe I've let past experiences just d- define the future. But um, I don't think so. It would have to, it would have to depend. Was there a particular moment or time or bad dating experience in which you said, that's it, no more of them? Or was it a gradual realization or... It was a gradual thing and then it was talking to my black female friends and us basically comparing and contrasting the ways that white guys saw us and spoke to us. And I was made I made certain to talk to black girls, my black female friends of all body types. So I'm a curvy girl. Um, I spoke to one of my friends who is like petite, one who's like athletic build, one mm-hmm. who's like sim thick. And the thing we had in common was the way that guys approached us on dating sites especially was so about our bodies and our skin mm. and what we could do for them sexually and basically it was just kind of a discussion about it. we were just like what where is the hope especially in Britain I mean I'm sure it, um, it, you know every place is different um, and I think you know app culture is so huge here mm-hmm. um, and there's I was talking to someone about mixers that uh, th- a thing and she said she went to New York and there were these mixers and we were <laughs> just like haha that could never happen here because everyone is super awkward and yeah. like the idea that you would be like out and being like hi yes I'm single and I'd like to mix with someone else single we it's like Brits are just like we're no that's terrifying mortifying let's just look at our phone yeah How much of what Queenie is going through about being black, about being a woman, and how much of it is about just going through your early to mid-20s and how that is just always for everyone a hot mess? Isn't it such a mad time? I'm turning 30 this year. And I'm like, thank you. I'm like, get it away. I just, I will get me away from my 20s. I'm not interested anymore. Yeah. Um, I really just, I just want to be out of them. I had a friend, one of my best friends, who turned 13. She was crying all week. And I was like, I don't know what you're crying for. Um, (laughs) But I think it is, you know what? I think it's that thing when you feel like you're meant to be an adult. And also, I think it's really vital to note that you leave all of these institutions that you've been in since you were a child, mm-hmm. um, where you have your structures. So oh, obviously, yeah. like, you, you know, over here, they tell you what to do. They tell you how to be. They tell you what your goals are, your ambitions are, your grade point average, I understand you guys have, your GPA. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, you have all of those things. And then suddenly it's time to get a job and you're like, sorry, hmm? Hmm, Because you don't, <laughs> where do I, who gives me the Where's job? Where's my guidance counsellor? <laughs> exactly. And actually, yeah, you hit the world running in a way but actually you don't run at all you end up stopping and being like oh wait oh oh, what you know and so I think there's this really it's this really weird space that feels like limbo but you actually have no idea where you're going yes and so I think early 20s are really tough time because you are definitely not yet an adult and I'm still learning things now about myself about how the world works about my feelings around things about how to navigate things oh, yeah. I was not equipped for anything when I was yes. in my early 20s but yes. I, I expected to be mm. um, and I think that expectation is what really knocks you on your 
oh, yeah. you know, off your feet. Oh, yeah. I am 34 now, going on 35. Very and nice. And I just six months ago began to feel like a grown-ass man. Yeah, like there's I something think, that, yeah. You, you just, like, and on top of the complications of being a child in your 20s, but, like, with a beard or, like, fully developed, <laughs> which is weird, you, like, also have that wonderful early to mid-20-somethings feeling of somehow knowing everything and knowing mm. that everyone else before has done it wrong. And if you could just yeah. do it your way and show them, they'd all get it. And I think the moment when I began to just settle down and, like, ease into the ride was, was when I said maybe I'm not better or smarter than everyone else. And maybe a mm-hmm. lot of folks have gone through the same thing before. And maybe the difference that I make in the world will be a slight move to the left or right, but I might not reinvent the wheel. And maybe that's yeah. okay. You it's know? about being realistic, right? It's yeah. about being like, I can only do what I can do. Yeah. Um, and also understanding that actually there are, it's really weird because I think we do believe a lot of stuff that we think just as people because all we have is our thoughts right like a, yeah. like a, a very base level um, and I think when you hear them enough you're kind of like I know no, that's right I'm true I can do all of that stuff but that's not real and I think there always needs to be space for other considerations but I do think that as we get older we do make space for that because we've got to make mistakes in order to get there I want to talk a little bit about how you got to be a best-selling author because just before this book was done and actually while you were writing the book, you were also doing a day job as like yeah. a marketing executive, which I still do now. Look at you! I'm leaving in one week. <laughs> in a week, at the end said? of this week. Yeah, I'm leaving at the end of this week. It's wow. gonna be new life. How do you feel about that? I feel good about it. I feel good because it means I can now concentrate on writing full time. Mm-hmm. Um, because you know, when I started out writing. I hadn't written at all. And I was like, I can understand. I can see that there's a, this gap in the market where, you know, someone like me would love to read a book about herself. So why don't you just write it? Mm-hmm. And so I went away for a week and I uh, just like started banging it out. And um, at the end of the first week, I'd written 40,000 words. And then... Wait, stop. Tell everyone your secret, <laughs> please. Basically, I, I'm just, it's really bad. I just basically just... I write at nighttime exclusively. Huh. And so I'm just nocturnal anyway. Um, And so I settle down to write at about midnight and then I look up and it's 7 a.m. And so, yeah, I just write and write. And I write really quickly. I write so quickly that sometimes I trip over the first sentence and then just write the second and then go back and finish the one that I was writing first because my brain just moves super quick time. You must be an Um, editor's dream. You're like, oh, you want that copy? I I got it. Do you know what? They are so lucky to have me. And I really hope they listen to this. Because genuinely, they'll be like, hi, here are your edits. Like, hear from you, like, in a few months. And and, in three weeks, I'll be like, hi, guys, just let me know what you think. Like, you know, just let me know what you said. And I've added a few flourishes. Um, But I just really like it. And once I get into the world, I can see it all. And I'm very firmly in there. And because... I can sit for hour-long periods and I can just write. I think that's really, really helped me. Thanks again to both Candice Carty-Williams and Angie Thomas for those conversations. And thank you, dear listener. There is so much stuff to listen to and read and watch and spend your time on. So every time anyone listens to this little low show, I am honored and extremely profoundly grateful. Thank you all. All right, with that, I wish you all a wonderful holiday weekend, a blessed, joyous new year full of all the good things you ever wanted. And I'm so happy to be talking with y'all very soon in 2020. Okay, back on your radio next weekend. Till then, talk soon.